0: Listener-supported, WNYC Studios.
1: I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag Indivisible Radio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show.
3: This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change.
4: From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Good evening.
5: And I'm Anne McElvoy, here from The Economist. It's Monday night on Indivisible, so Kai and I are both here to talk with you about the global context of the first hundred days of that Trump administration.
4: And later this week, President Trump will have one of his first big public tests on diplomacy. He's hosting Chinese President Xi Jinping at his Mar-a-Lago country club. And the entire world will be watching to see how these two leaders get on. The White House has already been talking tough in the buildup. Here's what Sean Spicer had to say about the meeting on Friday.
6: This isn't a sit-around-and-play-patty-cake kind of conversation. They're big issues. The president's been making it very clear since for decades, frankly, of the challenges that we face, and, um, and I think he wants to have a very good and respectful and healthy relationship, but he also wants to make sure that he tackles the challenges and the problems that are facing American workers and American
4: manufacturers and, um, and get to them. So tonight, we're going to focus on a couple of huge issues that the U.S. and China are going to have to deal with together, trade, as Sean Spicer pointed out there, and the climate as he notably failed to mention. So we'll talk first about the overall U.S.-China relationship and in particular trade. And listeners, for this first part of the conversation, we want to hear from people who believe their livelihood is directly affected by our trade balance with China. It's currently about four to one. We buy four times more goods from them than they do from us. Does this impact your work? Maybe you're a manufacturer or you work in manufacturing or maybe something else. But call us up. Tell us what you do for a living and what you're hoping that comes out of the talks with the Chinese president this week. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And like I said, we'll get to climate in the second half of the show. But for now, if your work is impacted by trade with China, how so? What do you want to see from this meeting? 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Or tweet us using the hashtag Indivisible Radio.
5: Well, joining us now to talk about the upcoming visit from China's President Xi Jinping is Michael Oslin. Michael is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and he's author of a book, The End of the Asian Century. And it's been quite controversial because it's suggested that we might need to think again about China's foreign policy and its economic fate in the next years and what the right American response could be. So, Michael, hi, hello. Good to have you with us. Thank
6: you, and Glad to be with you.
5: Nice to hear you on the line there, but a uh, little buzz on your line, not to worry. Um, the strengths and weaknesses of the two sides, what are they? Because as they meet, each side seems to think that, obviously, they can get something out of this meeting. It's quite unusual for it to be taking place in somewhere like mar a I would have expected it to be the full-on Washington treatment. But is this a sense of each side trying to show the upper hand in some way?
6: Well, you're not the only one who thought it should be done in Washington, and that it would be. But it is clearly an attempt by President Trump to get the the personal touch in, and and maybe have a bit of uh, a uh, a dominant feeling over Xi Jinping. You know, this is how he prefers to negotiate. Um, you know, you asked about how each side is going to be coming in, and mm-hmm. and it's interesting. Uh, ostensibly Xi Jinping will be coming in with the wind at his back you know he had uh, a very well-received speech at Davos uh, just days before President Trump was elected in which he seemed to snatch the banner of defender of global free trade and the global trade architecture from the United States Uh, He has been going around the region and the world talking about Chinese investment and, in fact, in some cases, actively picking off American allies, such as the Philippines and partners like Malaysia. But the reality is he faces an economy that is increasingly stressed, has increasing in numbers amounts of bad news, uh, and really has not come up with a a major reform plan. Now, On the other hand, you have Donald Trump, who, uh, you know, sends out a tweet that causes a week of panic and and paranoia throughout the United States and throughout the government, and then uh, seems to recover from that only to send out another tweet. So uh, both of them have the challenges, and both of them, I think, are going to take this as the opportunity to size each other up and figure just who has the more weaknesses.
5: There's a lot of Chinese officials having to sit there and look at a lot of Twitter over the weekends, I'm sure. Interesting you mentioned Davos, I was actually there uh, at that meeting. And I thought in some senses, there was a bit of a credulous response really to, to being told about free trade and openness and international rules uh, by, by China, which is in co- controversy of quite a lot of them. But there was a sense that it was a bit of a play, wasn't it It was moving into a space that Donald Trump seemed to have vacated by going for a more populist stance. But but I'm curious, where does that leave the relationship now? Who wants to do what?
6: Well, that, I think, is what we're going to find out, uh, certainly from the American side. Uh, the big problem, I think, that the president has going into this meeting is that he does not have yet an articulated Asia policy or a China policy, in part because he doesn't have his team in place. And this is something that people, at least in Washington, have focused on a great deal. You don't have the responsible officials who should be coming up with what the overall and broad strategy uh, and policies are going to be. Uh, On the other hand, I think for Xi Jinping, it is probably to follow up what the Chinese felt was a very successful, from their perception, uh, meeting with Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, in which Tillerson seemed to take a relatively soft line on all of the outstanding issues between Beijing and Washington and, in fact, and somewhat controversially, uh, repeated almost word for word Chinese formulations of the nature of this relationship, win-win-win. Uh, cooperation, mutual cooperation, and, and the like. I think Xi Jinping wants to get Donald Trump to, to basically repeat that, to accept uh, what is, in essence, China as an equal and the role for China. Um, the problem, is it- as, you've, as you've noticed, I was just going to say the problem, is that mm-hmm. just in the few days before this meeting, uh, the president and his team have swung back to a much more aggressive tone on Twitter.
3: Ah, well,
5: that's very interesting because what I was trying to to get my head around was this, this use of the term "paper tiger," which has a, a history in, in Chinese diplomacy, or sort of undiplomacy, sort of rude way of talking about America, isn't it? it was sort of all all hat, no cattle, really, in in sort of diplomacy speak. Mao used it, and now it's made a, a comeback. Some people were saying, well, this could be to do with the fallout over uh, Mr. Trump's comments on the one China policy that he was thinking of of revisiting it with obvious territorial concerns for China but it could be that he was just putting something on the table that he can retreat from in order then to show that he's given something do you buy that or is that a bit too sophisticated for the diplomatic world we're in right now with Donald Trump in the White House
6: well that that is certainly one uh one interpretation uh that you know even if the specifics aren't there Trump has a relatively set negotiating style that he himself has told us which is he pushes as hard as he can he sets the bar very high uh and then whether or not he continues to push eventually he he comes to some type some type of agreement. I think what's what's more interesting is that if you look at the, or equally interesting is that if you look at the trajectory of how this administration has gone about their first hundred days and and pre, if you look at the transition period, obviously Trump came in uh, after the election and and building right off the campaign, being having a very hard line on China. You mentioned the one China policy. He talked about uh, labeling it a currency manipulator and slapping tariffs on it and the like. In fact, relinked the issues of economics and security and politics. But then, once they took office, uh, very quickly that that went away, and it, it was quieted down by the visit of uh, Secretary Mattis to Japan uh, and uh, Korea, where he talked instead of, of challenging China that that we would look for diplomatic solutions to the South China Sea crisis. And that was followed on by Secretary of State Tillerson. Now, it's it's not that they you know they dropped every um issue that was a problem between the two countries but in essence they took a much more uh, accommodationist tone again mm-hmm. until just over the weekend when sebastian gorka said that the the, uh, the the islands that china was building in the south china sea would not stand and the president himself again began taking to twitter to talk about how difficult a meeting this would be that to me indicates that they have not yet really figured out what the policy is going to be. And that's where the danger is. The danger, I think, in this meeting is that they will either be simply reactive or that they will sort of swing again back and forth, which will lead to an instability that will prevent them from really establishing a baseline of relations for the next four years.
5: There's got to be a Chinese proverb for that. Thanks very
4: much for that, Michael. Listeners, we're talking with Michael Oslin from the American Enterprise Institute about the upcoming meeting between President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping. And we want to hear from you if your if your company or your job or however you make your living has any relationship to our trade deficit with China. What do you want to see out of this meeting? Eight four four seven four five talk. That's eight four four seven four five eight two five five. And let's bring in John from Des Moines, Iowa. John, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air.
7: So nice to visit with you.
4: You as well. What, how, how, does, how does your work in, relate to, the, to our trade with China?
7: I work for a mag, major manufacturer um, that is worldwide, and our wages are a fraction of what they were a generation ago uh, in manufacturing, mostly because we don't have enough manufacturing jobs to go around for qualified employees, and our our wages in this country are on a race to the bottom, because we're being measured uh, uh, to a worldwide standard of pay.
4: And to, can you clarify? I'm sorry, John. So you you are hiring in that company, or you work in that company?
7: I work in that company, and over the last 20 years, our wages have fallen to below half of what they used to be. Uh, Benefits slashed, and not because the company's not profitable it 's because there aren 't other jo- jobs that this company can lose their employees to. Um, we need healthy uh, job base in this country, otherwise the manufacturing jobs that do remain still don 't have to pay anything what kind of what kind of manufacturing job is it? May I ask What kind of stuff do you guys manufacture it's agricultural manufacturing. Okay
4: uh Michael, what do you think of this in terms of what could come out of this meeting uh if you know John feels like he's he's in a place uh, he's in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, he's working in agriculture manufacturing. He feels like there's not a lot of of labor mobility um, and and that has something to do with our trade with China. Do you think there's something that could come out of this conversation that would improve John's situation?
6: Well, I think it's it's a broader question that the president has raised about fairness of trade. Uh, and I'm from Illinois, so I understand well what John's talking about. Uh, and this is something that goes beyond China, and it has gone on for decades. Um, there are obviously different elements to... The question of how you try at least first to stabilize the situation and then as the president promises to to uh, reverse it you know, bring some of these these jobs back uh... one is the question of the the free trade agreements uh... and what what he believes are that they are not fair that we've been taken advantage of um, and that is that is something that uh... where china has had an outsized influence over the past you know, basically, since it got into the WTO back in uh, the mid-1990s, um, is true, but that is also something that those jobs were disappearing and beginning to disappear long before that, uh, competition from Japan and from Korea uh, and and other lower-cost producers. Um, one other element uh... that the president uh, you know got a lot of attention during the campaign about uh... was the question of uh, currency manipulation i think he's wrong in that china is actually what they're trying to do is prop up the renminbi because of the the macro weakness of this economy but the broader question of exchange rates and and the degree to which exchange rates in an open capital system uh... have basically put at mercy what were american competitive american uh, companies where they simply are unable, because of these larger financial structures, to be able to continue to compete uh, for years that has been draining away jobs from from the country. But in order to do that, you really have to be willing, and I'm not sure even this White House is willing, to reverse what is, in essence, reverse the past 35, 40 years uh, of global financial practice on the part of the united states really ever since richard nixon took the dollar off the gold standard and let exchange rates float there would be massive disruption with that and until you until you do that it's going to be very hard to see what type of incentives you can come up with in any trade agreement that would have a meaningful impact on bringing back manufacturing jobs the president can get a hundred here or a hundred there with carrier but these are much broader Trends that he's trying to reverse, and you have to attack it in some ways at, at the at the source. And it's not always going to be just a free trade agreement.
4: Let, let me let me move on to and thank you, John, for your call. Let me let me move on to Zach in Oxford, Ohio. Zach, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air.
8: Thank you. Um, I actually was just talking about the currency manipulation. I feel that um, China has a lot more tools when it comes to these sort of negotiations. And I'm sure your experts can comment on this, I work for a major manufacturer of construction supplies, and I know that China can undercut us with uh, a couple orders from those in charge, while we have Congress, we have the Senate, we have companies that don't answer to the government directly. So I'm just afraid of what deals Trump's going to try to make when uh, the Chinese president can do so much more.
4: Mm. So, I guess, let me add on to Zach's question for you, Michael. As you know, so so he's saying, you know, as I if I gather this right, Zach, that you're worried about sort of what backdoor stuff Trump's going to do that we never even know about uh, when he meets with uh, with the president. Is that correct, Zach? Is that it?
8: That and the fact that the Chinese can do, they have been manipulating their currency. We can't do that as easily so, because we respect global trade and follow
7: the rules.
4: So here's what I don't understand. Michael is you know it is, is is it, and I want to hear the answer to zach 's question about the whether there's some backdoor thing that Trump could do that no one would know about and would be bad um, but also when I hear my colleagues on the left, my economist' colleagues on the left, they say china's been manipulating currency for years and it 's a problem, and they've been dumping things on the world market uh and that 's a problem, and it 's affecting the trade deficit and Then I hear Donald Trump say those same things you I, I hear you saying similar things, uh, and you're from the American Enterprise Institute. You guys are pretty conservative. If everybody on the left and right agrees on this, what, where why is there not action on it?
6: Well, so these are a lot of different uh, questions that that come in on on the. Let me go first to to the caller's question and Zach's question on on the uh, role of state-owned enterprises, uh, in particular in, in China, and ways in which the government is able to act in the interests uh, of business more directly, uh, and in, in part uh, domestically because it's giving tax breaks and it's giving preferred treatment at home, but then also negotiate abroad uh, with sort of a, what is what, what you would consider as a national economic strategy. You, you're picking which sectors of the economy you want to win, and then you're trying to negotiate PACs that that benefited, and I think that's that, that's absolutely right. It, it is it is what Japan did back in the nineteen seventies. Uh, it is what ch- uh, China is is doing today. It is also, uh, we should note, a significant um, uh, drag on the Chinese economy is the inefficiencies of these state-owned enterprises, and one of the big failures of Xi Jinping in his four plus years as president has been to shrink the size of the state-owned sector. He has not done that. And in fact, even though by absolute numbers the state-owned sector is smaller, its influence and its role in the economy is larger than ever. And that is actually a negative for the Chinese uh, economy. So uh, I interpreted the question not so much as that Trump could do something backdoor, but that in essence he can't fight off uh, what the Chinese would be doing to directly protect their industries. Interestingly Trump's been trying to do that in some ways initially by targeting American and foreign companies for not leaving the country. You look at the carrier decision, what he did with Ford, uh, the threats he made to Toyota, and he's been basically getting them to change some of their plans to offshore jobs and keep keep them at home. Uh, That's a different type of negotiation, obviously, than he would have with the Chinese. But I think Zach's right um, that, you you know, we because of the system we have, you can't advocate directly on behalf or at least as easily for a company in terms of the action. You know, it's 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 basically, I think, because, um, first of all, China is changing.
4: Michael, let me interrupt you. We're going to have to take that after the break. We're going to take a quick break here. Uh, We're talking about how your work is impacted by the trade deficit. Stay with us.
1: This is Indivisible,
6: public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change.
4: From WNYC Radio, I'm
6: Kai Wright.
5: And I'm Anne McElvoy, with you from The Economist. Now, China is crucial to solving the North Korea standoff that's arisen over that threat of nuclear missile testing from Pyongyang. Very worrying indeed. And we've seen a reasonably restrained uh, response, Michael, from President Trump on that. Is that because he believes that he can put some pressure on China to deal with Pyongyang? Or is Pyongyang and indeed the entire North Korean situation out of the control of anyone, even someone of the boundless self-confidence and ambition as the new president?
6: Well, uh, we're certainly going to have that proposition tested. Um, I think we have to recognize that uh, Donald Trump has inherited a, uh, a failed U.S. policy on the part of uh, Republican and Democratic administrations alike. Uh, and if there's one area I think they, they can be cut some slack in, at least initially, it's it's in North Korea, where there's no one in Washington who believes that there's a, there's a good answer. Uh, it, it's the land of no good options, as everyone says.
5: But um, some options are always worse than others, aren't they, in particular when it comes to anything that, that deals with something so dangerous for the world?
6: Yes, I mean, you know, obviously a uh, a miscalculation on the part of the U.S. or its allies that causes Kim Jong-un to feel that he had nothing left to lose would be would be a tragedy. Um, but, you know, short of that, you have a situation where no one really has uh, real leverage. I think we we're mistaken if we think that China has political leverage over Kim Jong-un. I think it's been, uh, made, been made pretty clear that, that they don't. Uh, and you can see his actions in assassinating his uncle, who was... Beijing's man in Pyongyang, uh, certainly the most recent assassination of his uh, half-brother who was being protected by China, uh, that, that the, they don't have political leverage. They still do have economic leverage. And I think that the best, uh, the best card that the president can play is to threaten Chinese banks and companies that are abetting the North Korean regime to the tune of billions of dollars a year uh, and to threaten them with sanctions and other actions to get them... Uh, And there are hundreds of them, by the way, to get them to try to stop supporting this regime and giving it a lifeline.
5: But once he does that, Michael, he's backed off this idea, which is a very powerful one in international affairs. It's one that the way The Economist is is founded on this principle that trade isn't just about trade. It's about keeping the peace. It's about peaceful cooperation and reliance on people in other countries and in different parts of the world. If you start to use it to to, wave a big stick, it doesn't quite do the same thing, does it?
6: Well, I think certainly the, um, uh, the idea that trade is to create a more cooperative world and a more cooperative set of relations uh, is correct when you're talking in particular about nations that share similar values and similar regimes. I think it is being increasingly tested uh, by uh, relations between different species of regimes, so to speak, different types of governments, and the manipulation uh, that you do see. Um, if you know if you have the sanction of international law talking uh... about um, not supporting uh... north korean businesses or the government or the like and then you have chinese companies that are flouting it you know is using a trade cudgel really uh... worsening relations between beijing and the u s or is it or is it merely responding to a situation in which the chinese are the bad actors and i i think after you know Uh, almost a full generation now of failed world policy and U.S. policy towards North Korea, um, we may have to think uh, more seriously about the types of of, uh, sanctions that we'd want to be using against companies that, you know, by hook or crook or winking or nodding are really keeping North Korea going.
4: Let's get one more call in on this question about uh, how the how the, the, how how our u s trade deficit with China affects you you and your work? We have Jared from St Peter, Minnesota. Jared, welcome to Invisible. you're on the air
7: Hi, Kai. Thanks for taking my call uh, so my point was that uh I'm a union iron worker, and what I would like to see out of these talks is Trump either force China to make higher quality steel that they're going to sell in the United States uh, and stop flooding our market with this poor quality steel that is just dangerous. Uh, And if China won't agree to that, then only use U.S. steel for U.S. projects.
4: So this this steel dumping question, uh, Michael, is another thing that it seems like people on the left, people on the right, both agree is a thing. it's happening and it's uh, and it's exacerbating the trade deficit. Uh, do you agree? Is that is, is, is does Jared have a point?
6: Yeah, I think it goes back actually to what we were talking about when I uh, sort of ran over into your break there, which is uh, the fact that uh, until now there have been so many incentives to uh, cooperate with Chinese companies. Uh, you know whether it was the finance on this end uh, or sorcerers on on the other end uh, that really did not take into account what the effect was back home. Uh, the, you know the silent voices that were being affected, and so we could all say, well, we know there's dumping or we know there's there's unsafe products. But the fact was, until now, the overall picture that there was growth to be got from China really ran roughshod over those other concerns. Um, but I think that that era is ending, and, and that's what I was, what I wanted to say was, first of all, China itself is changing. China, the economy is slowing down dramatically. Um, the growth opportunities that are there, whether in terms of, of trade or finance, uh, are are slowing. They're not disappearing, but we'll recalculate them. Uh, and the costs, as as Jared points out, the costs can no longer be ignored, both in China and outside of China, whether it's environmental devastation in China, or some of the costs here at home. Um, free trade, the president is right should be fair trade, and here you know he, he certainly seems to ally more with those uh, on the left on this equation, which which is not necessarily wrong, of course, to look at those impacts and to try to figure out are we in a new era where maybe you will accept more inefficiencies or or less opportunity for profit if what it does is number one resolve clear inequities, such as dumping or currency manipulation, or what it also does is ensure that you have a stronger social system at home. Other countries do that. Japan, for example, has done that. And maybe it's time to think about that here. It requires a change in thinking, but you do have to carefully calculate out all of the implications, the economic implications, the political implications, and diplomatic implications of doing so. But certainly raising the question cannot be wrong.
4: Well, we're going to let Michael Oslin, author of The End of the Asian Century and a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, go. Thanks for joining us, Michael. It's my pleasure. Bye, Michael. And we're going to pivot because, uh, as you can hear, there are a great many things to think about with the U.S.-China relationship, uh, and one of those is the climate. So joining us now for that conversation is Andy Revkin, senior reporter for climate issues for ProPublica. He's been reporting on climate change since the 80s, mostly for The New York Times, uh, and, uh, and we're glad to have him. Andy, thanks for joining us on Indivisible.
1: It's great to be with you.
4: So, listeners, uh, we're pivoting again here for you as well. Uh, We were asking in the first half of the show how trade with China impacts your ability to make a living. We want to ask the same question about environmental protection and, and climate policy. What do you feel like are the financial stakes for you? Do you work in coal or in an industry that is impacted by climate change either helping you or hurting you? Maybe you work in renewable energy. What, whatever it is, we want to hear from you, too. Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255 or tweet using the hashtag Indivisible Radio. So uh, first things first, there is, of course, widespread concern that even under the US, under uh, the Obama administration that the U.S. is not doing, had not promised to do nearly enough to deal with the consequences of climate change. That concern has been magnified by pe- by, for many people by the Trump administration's stance um, on, on a whole host of things. Um, so let's just let, – let's say the U.S. is not going to lead on this. Let's just take – let's say they're not. You know, maybe yeah. something will change, but let's just take that as a, as a given. The U.S. isn't going to on, lead on this. Now what? Can, can in fact, China then step in as the uh, global leader on this?
1: Well, you know, the question, the first question is, what does leadership look like? In other words, what can countries do realistically? And even the ones that have this kind of green sheen around them, like Germany, which has had this big incentive for solar for a long time. When you really carefully look at virtually any country like that, you realize that there's not that much behind the sheen there's a lot of questions about how how aggressive everybody has been mm-hmm. so and and you know again as you mentioned having reported on this since the eighties since before there was a treaty the first treaty since before there was an ipCC the climate panel um i've I've, I've kind of come to the conclusion that well, that's why I love being at ProPublica. It's because, you know, show me the data. You know, accountability is our thing, and and, and the world... I'm uh, right with you there from The Economist. <laughs> yeah, right yeah, there. good, just, good. We, have,
5: we have data for breakfast good you know, on and you. an extra I know. sprinkling, even with evening drinks.
1: Wonks rule. <laughs> uh, but yeah. will,
4: rock, will wonks save us? Well, what? no,
1: no, but that's the thing. You know, one thing, I, I, I spent the first 20 years writing about climate change, presuming that, well, actually, the thing that needs to happen is better journalism. You know, if I just write the story a little more cleverly or put in a better graphic or... Or do a documentary, which we did at the New York Times in 2005 on the on the Arctic change. Well, then people will kind of get it. And um, but I've come to the conclusion: this is actually one of the hardest things that's ever faced humanity. It is a slow process. It, even even my friend Bill McHibben, who's in the city somewhere giving a talk tonight, I think in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, he's been at this on Bill the McKibben, same, who runs
4: uh, 350.org, right, right, right. Large right. climate change advocacy,
1: group. and but you know you listen to his rhetoric; it's all about you know go go go, urgent urgent action. But his his life has been like this: get up in the morning and do what you can do, kind of life every day. Thirty years of now moving from journalism to advocacy in his case, and and so the world's kind of like if depending on how you want to look at this, we're kind of on track to a better. Relationship with the climate system, but we're always going to be behind. But no the, matter who's it, like, you know, it's not really Trump. As I wrote a piece, one of my first pieces at ProPublica was um like putting Trump in the context of this, the actual problem, which has got the century scale to it. And Trump, he feels so dominant and dominant. He's dominated the news cycle, he's dominated a lot of my friends psyches. um but but this issue is bigger than him. both the solution factor, you know how quickly we're going to move toward uh, uh clean energy sources, and uh, the scope of the problem is actually it's going to take time um and it's so it's way beyond like a one president thing um, so that's the good news the The bad news is again, it's a huge problem <laughs> that it's going to take time it's in my mind. And I'd be curious to hear listeners. You know, the, the the rhetoric around this issue for a long time has been solve the climate crisis, like like it was a leak in a dam that you just sort mm. of could like fixed. You know, um, but it's felt to me more and more in, in these last ten years or so. Increasingly, it's becoming kind of normalized in a way that it's kind of like defense or education or. Uh, all the issues we deal with on a perpetual basis where you don't, you Andy, know. can I issue a little yeah. bit of a challenge on No, Oh, I'd love to, yeah. I,
5: yeah, uh, Because I, I absolutely hear what, what you're saying and I think all writers who deal with this and, and people involved in advocacy or indeed just exploring the arguments feel the same as like, oh, cool, climate change, you know, because it's that time again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I know it's your day job, so you probably feel a bit more enthusiastic, but I do think that it suffers a bit from that kind of branding problem. So have yeah. we gone the wrong way by these big, you know, trying to have these big conferences these big agreements many of which then don't seem to translate into practice and not surprisingly the readers, the listeners, the viewers just think well there was another thing that kind of half got yeah. done and there's only a certain amount of that that busy people probably going to hear in a second from uh, callers there's only even a certain amount of that they, they can take on board
1: Yes actually I don't I, I don't see that as a challenge at all I agree with you in the sense that um the the best thing about the last big meeting the Paris agreement uh you know and tracking the the diplomatic side of this since the beginning since 1991 92 um it was the first agreement that actually reflected the shape of the problem because what em- Paris like the world spent 20 years going for Rio way 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 back in 1992 through Copenhagen in 2009 trying to get a treaty that looked kind of like a contract, you know, with binding terms and timetables mm. and stuff. And Paris was – the finally there was this recognition that's not going to work in a world with 196 countries – the divergent uh, development stage. The stages. future of the
5: planet yeah. contract was somewhat knocked back, wasn't it? it? We got it something rather different.
1: Yeah, it won't be like that. It's in, in what Paris, what emerged in Paris, it w- like the whole process was a journey towards some destination, like some magical thing that would solve the problem. And Paris created a journey. So it was, the destination in Paris was a journey, a hundred year journey.
4: But still, I want to get back to this leadership question. Totally. Nonetheless,
1: leadership. Paris
4: required a lot of leadership, you know. Absolutely. Um, and if... The United States is not going to be in that role. I hear you saying that you know, be, yeah. you know beware the, the, the label of whoever claims that they're doing a good job because no one really is. But still, it Particularly on China, is there ways yeah. in which they could lead? i mean it, last month right didn 't they announce some significant changes in their own uh, on their own in terms of taking offline or canceling a bunch of coal powered plants totally. um, that was that w- was unique and large i mean
1: is there a, is there a leadership role that they could play well there is a, a, although they 're playing it again when you look carefully behind the the headlines. Uh, a lot of what China has done in the in the name of climate policy is really about domestic pollution policy. There, these are old power plants that are choking their cities and killing, literally killing or sickening millions of people uh, prematurely, and and that that impedes their economy. And and what's also happened in China is with the rise of middle class, for the first time they have a political reason to clean the air of the conventional pollution, the kind of stuff we did in the '70s, you know, the Clean Air Act, um. Uh, the 70s to the 90s, we kind of did that. Now China's kind of doing that because they have a middle class, kind of like we did. Right. So that so it's not just climate leadership. You'll see um, they're 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 heading toward peak coal for sure. But that's been you know the world is heading slowly, progressively away from these heavy carbon containing fuels toward high, uh, like natural gas is ch four it's it 's a c with four h's it 's not a ton of it 's not all carbon it's it 's fundamentally a cleaner fuel to burn than coal and and china is they want all the natural gas they can get they 're doing all the renewables they can get they 're still going to use more coal before it all before they transition completely oh and nuclear um, so they 're like the all of the above place and and they 've done great things in in lowering the cost of solar for example uh, and that's where Germany gets should get some credit because they created this subsidy for solar panels that mm-hmm. allowed China to sort of ramp up its manufacturing and and make them super cheap, so that now we can have an industry of people installing them on roofs. So China, you know, they're
5: leading not unproblematic in Germany. It must be said, however, no, no, I know, in terms believe of me, uh, price, uh, yeah, workability, know. yeah, you know, just. What are are those things that still work in progress?
4: Let me squeeze in a call before we go to break. Mm. Uh, Danielle from Boone County, Iowa, you're going to get the last word before we go to break. Danielle, quickly, what would you like to chime in?
3: Uh, I live in a colony of China. Iowa is growing a lot of hogs that China consumes. It's polluted our air and our water. Um, I teach environmental science, ecological restoration, and environmental ethics at two different universities. And my students are embracing the future with um, hope, with knives in their teeth, and, and some fear because they don't think we will do the right things. They're not invested in, in this buy-everything-you-can economy. They, they recognize that experiences are more important than accumulating goods, and they're ready to be asked to be challenged to lead us into the future. And I, I have solar panels on my barn roof. I don't, I make electricity. I don't consume it. I heat with wood. Um, I eat venison. And we all must live bioregionally. And by the way, Andrew, I've got your book sitting on my bookshelf. I'm looking <laughs> at it right now. A <laughs> well, well, plug for Andrew's book.
1: What's the name of your book, Andrew? Well, it, it, it must be very old <laughs> because I haven't written a new one lately. But, there was the North Pole was here. There was global warming. My global warming book came out in 1992.
5: So it's bioregional. It's slow reading.
4: <laughs> We're going to take a break. Knives in their teeth. Leadership from the students in Boone County, Iowa. We're talking to Andy Revkin, senior reporter for on climate issues for ProPublica, about U.S. leadership and, in, and the U.S.-China meeting coming up in Mar-a-Lago this week. We will be right back.
3: This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation
4: about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElvoy from The Economist. We're talking with Andy Revkin, senior reporter for Climate Issues for ProPublica, about the big meeting that's coming up this week between President Trump and President Xi. And amongst the things that we're curious about is who's going to lead on climate, if either. Um, and uh, we're taking your calls too. We want to hear from you if you feel like your livelihood is impacted one way or the other, for better or worse, by the efforts to control climate, control the control the, the, the consequences of climate change. Give us a call, 844 745 TALK. That's 844 745 8255. And on the subject of folks' jobs, Andy, let me um, play you a clip. This is so President Trump has signed a series of executive orders rolling back a bunch of regulations from from uh, from the Obama era yeah. with the notion that they're going to spur job creation, um, particularly in coal country. And uh, here's what he said as he was signing those orders.
7: Basically, you know what this says? You know what it says, right? You're going back to work. <laughs> You're going back to work.
4: So he was talking to what appeared to be some coal workers lined up behind him, though there's some suggestion that some of those coal workers were actually coal executives. But uh, is that true? Is it? is? is are, are, can can this actually put people back to work in the coal industry
1: there's there's a tiny prospect there's a line of things that could be done it's sort of like greasing a few gears to get some exports of coal and slowing down the clampdown on regulations might have a little bit of an effect in terms of coal being competitive in, in a couple places, but overall it's not the fuel of the future for sure. And, and as, as you've seen countless, anyone tracking uh, uh, coverage of this uh, from every standpoint, including from coal country, um, you see it's automation and all the same things that are taking away jobs in other arenas uh, are a big chunk of the job loss in coal. And it's not like I an mean, American president can just sort of magically wave a wand and say – Go back in the mines. It's just, for the most part, it's not going to happen. Um, the and you can't is wait. That hopeful, well, it,
4: so demand for coal has changed and is changing. I mean, demand is has that...
1: changed, and production the the way it's produced has changed. These giant shovels out in Wyoming that get, dig out the coal there. Um, it's it's not a job creating thing. There's a, there's that macroeconomic effect of having, but we have abundant gas. Natural gas is every analysis. Over and over, you think is like, okay, well, now we know there's a lot of gas. Then it's like, yes, and there's even more. Below the Marcellus shale, there's another layer of shale that's as soon as the price of gas will go up, then the drilling will proceed. And there's enough there for a lot of years going forward. And this is this bridge, you know, uh, to uh, – A post-carbon world, but it's not a coal bridge. Um, And and, and by the way, see, Trump has had this magical. He he has waving two wands at once. We need more natural gas, one wand, and we need more coal jobs, two wands. But they're actually fundamentally competitive. You can't you can't wave both of those wands at the same time. Uh, And and that's there's this kind of magical thinking. Or you know, I I hate to think that um, there will be disappointment in coal country. I I think people. who might have had their hopes raised for whatever reason um, are not likely to see them um, um, uh, assuaged For met.
4: Let's bring in Will from Tallahassee, Florida. Will, how you doing? Welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air.
0: Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. I just want to say that I uh, listen to you every night after class, and I tell all of my friends to do the same.
4: Wow. After what kind of class?
0: Wow. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's uh, graduate school, public administration. Uh.
4: Okay. Well, we're glad to hear it. So, how does how does this how does your graduate school in public education connect to uh, uh, the, the the energy questions that we're talking about
0: here? Uh, well, it's not quite the school that um, that I wanted to talk about tonight. I've actually spent ten years working in restaurants and hospitality, and then uh, my dad did it for thirty five years before me. And uh, you know, we live in Florida. We're surrounded on three sides by water. I think only Hawaii has us beat there. Um, but, um, you know, I, I'm definitely, I definitely feel that, uh, you know, the more you know, the United States ignores the climate issue, um, the, the more we suffer here specifically in Florida, because we depend so much on that tourism revenue.
1: Mm. Well, yeah, the Florida is, um, sea level rise in Florida are not friends. Uh, <laughs> if you, at least the Florida that the humans enjoy, um, Florida has been underwater before, and it'll be underwater again. It's a question of the pace of change. The um, the, sea le- the, ri- the rate of sea level rise is, is highly uncertain. It's one of the parts of the climate picture. We know, you know, the basics are clear. Greenhouse gases actually work. They make the world warmer than it would otherwise be. But the pace of sea level rise between now and, say, 2100 is still kind of uncertain. But as, as the New York Times, my buddies, uh, I, I was at the Times for a long time, uh, recently reported, um, you're already seeing routine flooding um not not even storm related flooding on Florida's coasts uh, and also other parts of the East coast because it's an area where sea level rise is having more of an impact already. The Atlantic is kind of sloshy. the west side of the Atlantic, meaning the east coast of Florida is more vulnerable to the rate of sea level rise will be higher quicker there than than elsewhere so and and interestingly, by the way, Florida is one of the places where there are Republicans quietly in the background who are working to, on resilience policies, even as the Trump administration is trying to cut budgets for those things.
4: Well, and interestingly, too, I mean, you know, he's talking about a hospitality jobs. Will was talking about hospitality jobs, which is not a job sector one thinks of when, when you think about climate change. I wonder about, you know, what are all the ways beyond coal um, where, sure. uh, where we might lose jobs if we don't do something?
1: Well, the things, you, you know, look at, um, um, it was in Thailand four or five years ago where the supply chain for uh, hard drives, I think it was hard drives, got completely disrupted by epic flooding. And they were they had built these factories in areas that were a floodplain. Um, and anyone who's not thinking about that, any business, can be vulnerable to disrupted supply chains. We live in a global economy and, and where your widgets come from um, or, or your food or whatever can be very disrupted by... These kinds of um, uh, climate related events. So that's kind of, there'll be these. Oh, I'll give you one one last example. You know, the New York City reservoirs. I used to write about the regional environment for a long time, and everyone thought, well, the reservoirs, you know, they'll be vulnerable to like drought or, you know, or. But it actually turns out one of the things that happened around 1999, I had, I covered there was this winter heavy rain, super rainstorm, and after snow, and the reservoirs got all um, uh, muddy. Turbidity—it's called—and turbidity is not your friend if you run a water supply system because bacteria and stuff like to grow in the in that silty part of water. So the city was suddenly thinking, "Oh my gosh, this isn't just like about running out of water; it could be about silty water from heavy rain." It's not—it's mm. like too much rain isn't necessarily good, even if you're thinking about water supplies. So those kinds of unanticipated consequences are there for water systems, for um, the way we work and move. You know, we're so mobile and connected now that. It'll be some of the things that'll happen, will be things we haven't thought of. uh, Or if you're not thinking in that, that's what resilience. Thinking is. Let's right.
5: take a look, though. Could, could could we just take another look at perhaps at the other side of of, of the argument and, and talk about Scott Pruitt, uh, Trump's EPA administrator. So environmental mm-hmm. protection is, is his bailiwick. And he fits into that category, which is sometimes called clim- climate science denier. And so listen to this from a CNBC interview last month, when he was asked mm-hmm. if he believes that carbon dioxide was the primary driver of climate change. And here's what he said.
6: No, I think that that measuring with precision uh, human activity on the climate is something very challenging to do, and there's tr- tremendous disagreement about the, the degree of impact. Uh, mm-hmm. th- so, so no, I would not agree uh, that it's a primary
1: contributor uh, to the to the global warming that we see. Oh, that's such a funny you know, it's a classic dodge because it's like saying. You're approaching an intersection on a highway, and you're you're arguing about the speed of the truck that's coming the other way. <laughs> is it coming? Seven, is it 75 miles an hour? I'm not. Well, we can't really. You,
5: uh, you preempted my question. But, <laughs> okay, uh, sorry, I just couldn't. Scott, but it's it's slightly different actually because <laughs> you, you shouldn't get away with everything without a, 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 another challenge. So, sure. what I suppose I'm thinking there is you could accept the the first part of his statement that there is still tremendous disagreement about the degree of impact that if it's you know, if climate change works out over the uh, so certain period of time at one degree that's different from two degrees when it really starts to get very dangerous indeed and obviously uh, thereafter lies catastrophe so do climate change acceptors we've talked about the deniers they always get the rude word do the acceptors need to be a bit more precise about what we actually know no
1: in fact it's the opposite Uh, I think I think the acceptors have been too have uh, implied too much precision uh, I've written a lot about the two degrees threshold. As a, there isn't a magical threshold. It's a, it's a political threshold. And if you look carefully at the history of that number, it's not like science has determined that after two degrees, all the glaciers melt and, and all the reefs uh, uh, broil. And, and that, I think, has enabled. But you
5: said he, ha- he had a dodge. But isn't it a, bit, it, it, isn't it a bit of a fudge, if not a dodge, to say, well, any amount is really bad? Because people will quite naturally say, well, can you tell me how much is containable and how much isn't?
1: No, I I think this is an arena. It's called risk management. Where where you, if you look carefully, the things that matter most about the climate system, despite the the clarity on the basics, are are are, are, the things that matter most are the least certain. The rate of sea level rise, how much warming a certain amount of CO two buildup in the atmosphere will bring, and there's a whole there's a whole science. There's a website. I love that. I I I went to this meeting in Washington. It's the Society for Decision Making Under Deep Uncertainty. There is such a thing. It's deepuncertainty.org. dot org. Go there, readers, right, listeners, it's a right now. Very good
5: departmental name.
1: And it's people from the Rand Corporation and the military and um, and and weather forecasting. It, we live with deep uncertainty and make decisions all the time. And and what's happened, I think, is on both ends of the spectrum, there's been too much of a. Uh, well, as I said, I think uh, people like Scott Pruitt, and you saw this over and over again in the hearings, the confirmation hearings. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, we don't know, therefore we don't um, do anything. Mm-hmm. And it's just that, not well, exactly, that kind the of the problem. Well, exactly. The fact, even
5: if you, you don't know, it doesn't mean you don't have to do something. Well, and it just,
1: or it's just, the opposite. Yeah, and don't, just not you should act. Just to give you one more sense, it's not, see, then you end up in this, like, weird world where you think, well, if more science happens, it'll magically make things simpler. And, and maybe this is where longevity <laughs> comes in. You know... Um, Hurricanes, when I was writing about this in 1988, uh, everyone thought, well, warmer seas mean more hurricanes. You know, hurricanes thrive on hot water. And and now it's like the 30 years of science has made it ever more complicated. It's like there'll be fewer hurricanes overall in a warmer world, but the ones that form have a higher chance of being stronger. So if you're the mayor of a coastal city, does that matter much to you? Not really. It just means if you're in a coastal zone prone to hurricanes— hurricanes are bad therefore make sure you're prepared for them it doesn't mean that that 30 years of science made it simpler and and that's an issue that i think people have to understand
4: all right well let's let's get don from philadelphia into this conversation don welcome to indivisible you're on the air
1: awesome how are you guys
4: pretty good Good. how are you doing great what what, would you like to chime in about
0: so I, I, one of the, the things I wanted to, to bring up is that, you know, that we were talking about the different industries that people don't expect, expect to be impacted by climate change. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things we're trying to deal with on the beekeeping side is the sort of death of a thousand cuts we've been dying from over the last, oh, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years or so. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to isolate the variables for why our bees are dying and having the weather change dramatically on us in the midst of that is, you know, we're trying to hit a moving target at this stage of the game and you know it's 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 complicating matters you know the flowers coming into bloom ahead of our bees are ready for them and you know we're we're trying to move bees off into other areas just to accommodate that um so it's 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 really been it's it's going to make things harder rather than easier for us going forward. I
4: suspect, Don. What does that mean for you, like running a business? Um, those kinds of those kinds of unexpected changes. How, how,
0: what does that mean? This, I mean, you know, it means that instead of leaving my bees in Philadelphia, I have to ship them down to Georgia. You know, we just did that for the first time this year. Um, you know, to try and get them out of this sort of weird winter that we were having. You know, when when the bees build up. It, when it gets warm and then it gets drastically cold right after, you know they can they can lose a lot of those baby bees that they were just getting started. And this kind of like up and down, um, you know, r- really hurts us. So, you know, mm-hmm. what we we're looking for is consistency, like with any and, business, right? You know, predictability. It, yeah, and in the face of that, I mean, you're, we're just talking about you know d- deep uncertainty. I mean, <laughs> every year we're you know we're coming into fall, going, oh, "How's this winter going to go?" And yeah. you know, it, it makes things hard.
4: Thanks for that, Don. Let's go to Catherine in Highland, New Jersey. Catherine, you're on the air. Welcome to Indivisible.
2: Hi, um, I have so much to say, but all of your topics this evening <laughs> have been fantastic. Um, well, <laughs> pick one of them. Question, <laughs> go okay. For it. Well, your previous question about um, how the energy industry affects you—I'm um, a recent graduate. I just got out of grad school. I'm currently teaching at a university, um, but my major was in marine biology. So while the energy industry doesn't directly affect me, um, this lack of support for the science community as a whole, is, I'm directly affected in that way. Um, and my thought just through the entire Trump campaign was, you know, you can't bring back coal jobs. There's hmm. there's not enough usable coal for us, and we need to start investing in renewable resources and so really looking at the issues that do face our planet as a whole, because as we've seen throughout the whole show, um, all aspects of industry are going to be affected from this climate change, we, we don't really, we're not proactive about it. Um, so that was just my comment
4: on that. Thank you, Catherine. Let me ask you, Andy, sort of thinking about industries that are impacted that we don't think about, what about, you know, actually carbon producers and this idea that we have a carbon bubble right now and that part of the issue is that, that all of these reserves that that are that, that are the value for for mm. carbon companies now will quickly become devalued when at some point and, and that some of the, and, and and we need to manage the walk down of those assets or we would have a big crash and that this is what a lot of like the bankers and the global finance people are scared about what about that is that the
1: liability the, the sort of shareholder liability aspect of it I I um, the the issue I just today and tomorrow and Wednesday there's a meeting in Brooklyn of all places the Sustainable Energy for All meeting it's a UN
4: you go to a lot of creatively named meetings
1: yeah but but <laughs> the this is this uh, commitment and the Sustainable Development Goals that we by 2030 the world will have uh, full among many things full access to uh, modern energy services and and you, the people who are there from developing countries uh, you know energy needs in most places continue to trump climate concerns. Uh, if you are burning firewood and would prefer to burn propane, the fuel that we all enjoy in our backyard grills, uh, and someone, if someone at some European foundation doesn't want to have that available to you because of climate concerns, it's not going to be a, a salient in a country where there's no energy access. So so that that's the counterpoint to the idea that the climate concerns will, will cause us to prematurely um, abandon, well, let's say natural gas for sure. Uh, oil and natural gas are going to be around a lot longer probably than coal. Yeah. Coal has all these downsides, you know, direct pollution and stuff. So so those assets, the coal assets, we're already seeing that. You know, the coal companies are already kind of in trouble. Um, and and there does seem to be a global... Uh, there'll be more coal used before we're, we're through this uh, carbon pulse, but but uh, that'll be the first thing to go. But, but gas, uh, oil... Profound needs are going to not magically go away too quickly.
4: To come sort of full circle on my initial question on who who's going to lead on this thing. So, uh, if the federal government doesn't lead quickly, can states yeah. lead? Can is it reliable? To, is it reasonable? To believe that states could take over this and fix it.
1: Well, just today at this meeting, actually, states and cities, uh, cities have been sort of vying for the leadership role. Uh, Mayor former Mayor Bloomberg was over there, and he's been pushing this idea for a long time. And but I heard you know interesting things like um, uh, if a City, cities in Europe are starting to banish uh, diesel diesel cars from their downtowns, and that could end up being this pulse of uh, sort of a shift in what car companies choose to make, because uh, cities are sort of nudging their way into a leadership role. So that's possible. But I, I love the idea that the students in Iowa with <laughs> the knives in their teeth, to me, they're the leaders. And, and the the worst thing that could happen right now is for Trump to uh, defund basic science and so that people aren't like, in a position to lead. Science and students.
4: Thanks to Andy Revkin of ProPublica for joining us. And thanks to you for all of your calls. You've been listening to Indivisible. This is Public Radio's national conversation airing four nights a week for the first 100 days of the new administration administration. Tomorrow on Indivisible, WNYC's Brian Lehrer talks to conservative talk show host Hugh Hewitt and progressive MTV News correspondent Anne-Marie Cox about Russia and surveillance. And we're going to launch a new experiment between Indivisible and Story will Hear more about that. I'm Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElvoy from The Economist. Talk to you next week.
3: Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation.
1: If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.